Hi and welcome back to Straight Up, the music podcast that sits down with some of the most exciting names across pop culture to chat all about the music that soundtracks their highs and their lows, from the song that's got them through their first heartbreak to the song that makes them feel invincible. It's brought to you by journalists Eleanor Halls and Kathleen Johnston. It's fun, it's deep, it's juicy, it's full of stories you've never heard before and it's always recorded over our guests' favourite drink. So this week we have the amazing Hannah Reed on the show. We spoke to her after London Grammar's third album, Californian Soul, went to number one. And before she was about to headline All Points East, you are going to love this episode. Guys, please let me and Kathleen know what you thought of it by leaving us a review or DMing us on Insta. Our handles are in the show notes. And by the way, for anyone who noticed that were two episodes for our last guest, KSI, or that maybe the episode you listened to wasn't playing properly, so sorry about that, we had a little tech glitch, but it's all sorted now, so just re-download the episode and you should be good to go. Lastly, thanks so much to Marlon Percy for our music and editing. Anyway, over to our chat with the amazing Hannah, so enjoy. So Hannah Reid is the award-winning frontwoman of London Grammar, the wildly popular British three-piece who met at Nottingham University and whose third album, Californian Soil, went straight to number one in April. Its release was a real moment for Hannah, who just a few years ago thought that she might quit the industry for good, which we'll talk about later. But thankfully for Hannah and for us and all of her fans, she was able to reconnect with music and with writing and has become one of the most fierce, most inspiring voices for change in the music industry as a result. So thank you so much, Hannah. We're so, so excited to have you on Straight Up. How are you today? I'm very well. I'm very well. Thank you for that intro. My head oh. is is bigger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah, as you may know from the name, we actually founded the po- podcast because we always recorded with our guests over a drink, straight up, although it didn't actually always end up being straight up. We know that you don't drink, but we wondered what could you talk us through like your decision it's not often that we meet people who have gone teetotal in the music industry so was there what was the kind of thought process behind that did something happen to make you uh, choose yeah. that lifestyle yeah it it did um I mean I've always been a lightweight I've definitely <laughs> always been a cheap date I mean that's an <laughs> understatement so like if I had one drink I probably would be embarrassed myself on the podcast anyway (laughs) um so I never I mean I was never kind of you know an alcoholic on the road or anything like that I've never had a substance problem but I um have struggled with my health I have a condition called fibromyalgia so I can't really drink that much um sadly um I do I'm so much better than I was actually that I do obviously have the occasional drink now with my girlfriends especially at like hens and things like that when you can't get away from it um but yeah my drink of choice probably would be tea see to be fair you can't beat it no well, that's so, so what is the condition for those listeners that won't know what that is could you explain what that health condition is yeah it's um it's a chronic pain condition essentially but it comes with a sort of host of other symptoms alongside it that people don't really understand they don't really fully understand the condition. There's actually um, a really exciting new study that's just come out that says that, you know, it does look like an autoimmune disorder or dysfunction. Um, so you get sort of, uh, you can't control your body temperature, you get heart palpitations, um, chronic fatigue and brain fog, and then joint pain. So a lot of people start off thinking that they maybe have arthritis or um 
think they get tested for a lot of, a lot of other autoimmune diseases that come back negative. Um, and then eventually you kind of get diagnosed as fibromyalgia, as having fibromyalgia when you don't have any other autoimmune disease. God, that must be, how did you find that? When kind of how old are you when you found that out? Um, so I, when I first got sort of diagnosed, I was 24 and it's it's a strange one because there's no one really you can go to rheumatologist but it was the first person who actually said to me I think you have fibromyalgia was a very nice GP actually Mm. and I remember him kind of handing me this sheet of paper and me just reading it and being like I don't know what this is there's nothing I can do about it so I just I'm going to reject this entirely and go down the alternative health route and just try and cure myself of whatever this is um and then since then I've had kind of various points in my life where I've gotten better and then um flare-ups basically when then I've gone back to doctors and um had other tests done and you know I've accepted now that I have fibromyalgia. To what extent do you think it's like stress related because I know obviously you had been you and the band have been on the most crazy crazy grind since 2013 when you came out with the debut album I mean you've sold what like more than a million gig tickets worldwide like that that's got a take a toll on your health as well right yeah I think um I think there's definitely genetics involved but they do say that stress definitely can trigger autoimmune diseases I think you hear stories of um you know people going through very stressful traumatic um events like car crashes even I think and then um ending up with kind of allergies or autoimmune problems afterwards so there's definitely a relationship there and the first time that I got seriously ill was at the end of our first album campaign and that's when um I just became I, I was really ill I didn't know what was wrong with me having a whole host of blood tests um I did have some blood tests that came back a bit dodgy at one of them actually was my uh liver function was completely off whack and I was completely teetotal obviously and the doctor asked me if I was using intravenous drugs and I was like I'm probably one of the only musicians (laughs) who isn't (laughs) and I was like I promise I was like no I was like I can't tolerate anything um and again I think it's all part of fibromyalgia they don't really understand you know what it is um and it took me a long time to recover from that and I basically had definitely been working through exhaustion I think for a long time I mean that obviously this is a really really difficult illness to have and I can't imagine what you've been through but if we were to find like the tiniest silver lining in being forced to make that kind of lifestyle choice particularly in the industry you're in where I think a lot of people do talk about you know the temptations of drink and the parties and how that can affect your mental health as well do you think that you've actually found yourself as a byproduct of this kind of insulated from those issues or do you feel like sometimes almost like an outsider looking into that kind of um more dysfunctional side to the music industry obviously you have experience which we'll come on to later some <laughs> other very dysfunctional parts of the music industry yeah um I do feel it I have felt at times maybe a little bit of an outsider I definitely think in the whole uh part of being a band I feel like an outsider in that sense, just because there's a huge rock and roll history of being in a band. Yeah. 
And it's definitely, you know, there are a few sort of side swipes and jokes that get made about London grammar, obviously, because we're just the most unrock and roll band I think that has <laughs> ever probably existed. But I think in that, in terms of that kind of history, I definitely feel like a bit of an outsider. Yeah. I always sometimes fantasize about like how many hours of my life, uh, what I would have done with all those hours that I spent hungover every month. And like, you must be, you must have so much better productivity than so many of your friends. I don't know. See, what I find kind of interesting actually is that my friends who kind of tend to be the people who are hung over a lot tend to be the kind of people who are like, God, I feel absolutely terrible. I threw up and I had to be in, you know, go to work at seven for a vacation <laughs> and I absolutely nailed it and was fine. Whereas for me, if that was me, I would just, I mean, there's no way I could do a gig on a hangover. It would just be, that hell. just would not happen. Yeah, it would be hell. That would never happen. <laughs> yeah you're right actually it's always those people that seem to just they be just able like to handle it. it all yeah yeah and um, so let's talk a little bit about what your parents were playing in the house when you were growing up like what are your earliest musical memories so my earliest musical memories I, I my mum was definitely you know a big music lover so she loved um Motown she loved she loved all the great singers so she listened to a lot of Barry White and Whitney Houston um, she loved Michael Jackson, um, which obviously, you know, now is just, I mean, we yeah. can't really talk about him. So we'll just yeah. move on quickly from that. <laughs> um, but I can't deny that there was, you know, he was played a lot. Um, anything kind of by Quincy Jones, you know, mm. that kind of, that mm. kind of vibe. My, my dad, bless him. I think he does love music, but has never really grew up with music and could never understand why I always wanted to have the radio on and didn't want to just sit and talk to him when we were in the car. Um, <laughs> bless him. But he kind of then un started to understand more. Um, what was your go-to radio station? That's a really good question because it's changed over the years. So when I was a teenager, definitely Capital. Yeah. Mm. And if Magic was on, I'd be a bit like, what is this? Oh, my God. Um, whereas now it would be magic. Probably. Yeah, yeah. love a bit of magic. <laughs> same, same. Especially Depends if what you're I'm like doing in a taxi and it's like dark. It's just yes. like, yeah. Um, okay. So, and what talk us through what your parents? What were they into? Were they into music, or did they have a completely different profession? What did they do? Um, so completely different to me. Um, I do think they are both creative in their own way, which is kind of interesting. But um, neither of them are musicians. So my mum is a teacher and my dad um, was an architect. Um, he's retired now. Um, so, but my granddad on my mum's side did teach himself how to play the piano and sung songs. And apparently his cousin was a folk singer who used to travel around oh, pubs yeah. and kind of sing songs so it's definitely in my family tree shall we say because didn't you kind of teach yourself the piano to start with as well like just sight reading and trying different tunes I I did so I was a very strange child I think from what I remember now I look <laughs> back and I think gosh I was kind of strange um I I <laughs> I don't, I remember trying to have piano lessons and just, I don't think I liked being told what to do. So I went away and taught myself how to play the piano. And I kind of learned just by ear, like figuring out songs that I liked on the piano and figuring out chords. And I started writing songs, you know, at, at quite a young age. And um, I still play the piano in that way 
now. So you were into, obviously, we actually realised last time we spoke that we went to the same, like, after-school dance club, which was, um, you know, kind of modern stuff, but also, like, musical theatre and, like, all the, everything that everyone would probably imagine. Is this where you learnt your Irish dancing, Kathleen? No, my Irish dancing was actually separate. That was a, <laughs> there were different lessons. Um, this was modern jazz and... It's modern um, jazz. Did you have yeah. the shoes? <laughs> I did. And I those like trainers, the black, which probably would be quite stylish now. Well, like missing... so I found mine of those the other day. I mean, I was terrible. I was like always at the back, but like... <laughs> um, those shoes are the comfiest shoes because they have a split sole. <laughs> yes. So you should try and find them. Oh my God, have you been wearing yours? I definitely did wear them for yeah. a while. <laughs> I think I'd slightly grown out of them, but yeah, I found Squeeze them. And I your wore toes them. back in. So were you guys forced to attend these these dancing lessons? Uh, no, no. Like, no, well, no, it was I, by choice. Yeah, <laughs> I wanted to do it. Like it was like a thing. Was, and it was in like secondary school. It wasn't like primary school. It was like, when we're, I was like, not that. But yeah. um, if you if you lived in that if you lived in Ealing that area of London I feel like anyone who was anyone went to this this dance school yeah you kind of had to go <laughs> yeah and we were saying it's like really fun doing like we used to, we used to do like a big show and it was really fun because you basically just got to hang out with like all your friends every day um, but that sounds very wholesome yeah, were you in so were you a kind of like all singing all dancing kid that was like into like musical theatre and stuff as well as pop music and also as you said more sophisticated classics um I wasn't I think I tried to be a good dancer but just failed miserably um so I tried I definitely um I kind of was into musical theatre I did um this this charity um thing called YMT Youth Music UK and I I did that for a while so it was like basically like summer camp you know and you learn so many skills I think Ed Sheeran did it and um some other people have kind of gone through those doors as well nice. and um it's funny when I exp- try I was trying to explain what it is once to my bandmates Dan and Dot and they just thought it sounded like the lamest <laughs> thing and I was like I promise it is not lame like I would not <laughs> we would not be here if it wasn't for this musical theatre camp honestly you missed <gasps> out um yeah, and I learned so much there for sure. Yeah. Of course, being in a band though, it's kind of no dancing, no dancing allowed. Too cool. Yeah, well, that's where, like, again, like, I have this other side to me. There's like band me, and then there's me with my girlfriends. Um, <laughs> I do think people would be quite shocked if they could see the real me, but I definitely, it's definitely not on brand. You know, I have to keep that locked away yeah. for sure. <laughs> So we're going to take the wild bet that you listeners like a little bit of Lambda Grammar, because who doesn't? And also, why would you be here if not? And you've probably loved their latest album, Californian Soil, which sounds amazing in that early evening sun when you're having friends round for drinks on a summer Saturday afternoon and everything is dreamy and you're looking forward to the night to come. So dreamy that it would be criminal to let bad quality sound get in the way. So as regular fans of the podcast will know, Kathleen and I are pretty attached to our cute acoustic Active 200s, a pair of wireless high resolution loudspeakers that allow you to wirelessly stream music from your phone, tablet or laptop and connect a turntable, CD player, games console or TV via HDMI. 
These are the perfect speakers for hosting friends at home. Not only do they look so chic in your sitting room, coming in sleek matte white or black and sitting on elegant silver stands, but they are also ideal for listening to music as a group of friends. You can control them through all popular streaming apps and the sound is studio quality. Trust me when I say these speakers are special. They're kitted out with multiple integrated amplifiers, which is a total game changer. They're hidden within the speakers, so it leaves no trailing cables, which is ideal for any interiors obsessives like us. Honestly, these speakers are gonna upgrade your living room and they will literally make you feel like London Grammar are playing the album for you privately right in the room. And if you didn't get tickets to All Points Youth Festival to see them headlining, then this will more than make up for it. And actually, let's be honest, wouldn't you rather listen to Hannah's angelic voice without the ambient sound of thousands of other screaming fans? Probably. Get your pair at www.cureacoustics.co.uk and thank you so much to Cure Acoustics. So what was the song that soundtracked your first romance? Can you remember? Because I think we all have such vivid memories attached to um, music and being a teenager, whether it's like something that kind of reminds you of like heady days of first love or whether it was like a breakup song that you played over and over again and, you know, cried about at night. Like what sticks out to you from those kind of like lame teenage days? <laughs> there are there are definitely a few. Um, so the first one... I would say, oh, um, John Mayer, Your Body is a Wonderland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was, was the mood for that one? Well, I was, I did, my first boyfriend who dumped me and broke my heart. Um, oh my I was like 14 and I just remember being obsessed with John Mayer at the time. I think because he was really into John Mayer. Um, <laughs> yeah, so a requirement of first love is you had to be into the music that your boyfriend was into, otherwise he literally wouldn't fancy you. <laughs> Yeah, it was that's the kind of I, thing. Where, that's like, what I found. Oh yeah, there you go. Yeah, two thousand and one. Oh wait, is that no, no, no? Yeah, that definitely was one of them. Um, Neon, as well. Mm-hmm. That was a really great tune. I'm just looking through all of his songs now, but um, that was definitely my first love. Um, so why did he break your heart? Shame on him. I just didn't fancy me anymore. But it was oh, brutal. It's not even like I know. a proper reason. No, there was no reason. It was actually, I still think about it sometimes. No, I'm kidding. I don't. <laughs> but, um, Inspired but, a couple of tracks on the first album. I did 100% write a song about it. I mean, it's so embarrassing now that I look back. I'm pretty sure it may have even been played at like in a school assembly or something, which just makes What's me the song die. called? I think. I think it was called Blue Eyes. I just, oh my God, that's so cringe. (laughs) Thank God that happened because then I carried on doing that with every relationship that came up an album, basically, (laughs) with every failed relationship. They were your music. Yeah, well, I do think that if nothing bad happens in your life, it's the same with like authors or poets. Like, you know, it's not very, like happiness isn't that poetic, to be honest, is it? I think sadness sells. That's <laughs> that's my motto in London Grammar. Is sadness sells. It was kind of weird. I'm actually kind of settled and and happy now with someone, which is which is really great. But for a while, I was like, am I going to be able to write music anymore? I'm not sure if is this going to like take my magical sadness powers away. Yeah. But <laughs> but luckily, luckily, I I think we actually made like one of the best albums we have so far. So I was like, oh, maybe happiness is is all good too. Oh, that's good. Exactly. And also, it doesn't have to be your own experiences, right? It can. Yeah. So I've been drawing on that a lot more 
for sure. Now like that taking on character and stuff. Yeah, and just like obviously that you've always got girlfriends who are calling you about something. So there's there's loads of material to draw on. <laughs> luckily for them. <laughs> right, guys, as you know, we bloody love a drink here at Straight Up, but sometimes you have just got to take it easy. As you've heard, Hannah can't really drink alcohol for health reasons. And recently, I know I've been trying to cut back quite a bit and just be more mindful, especially after getting over the initial excitement of being able to socialize this summer. I'm sure there are lots of people out there feeling the same right now. So this is where Strike comes in. If you haven't heard of this range of non-alcoholic spirits, then trust me, this is a game changer because they are literal replicas of the ones we all know and love. Spelt S-T-R-Y-K-K, Strike do not gin, not rum, not vodka, and now also not vanilla vodka. And it's simple as literally just using each one as a straight swap for its namesake spirit. They are just like the real thing, genuinely, and they're actually distilled using the same method as alcohol, just cutting it back to 0.1% ABV. That means zero grams of fat, zero grams of sugar, ultra low carbs, and only three calories per double shot. We are excited about the brand new Not Vanilla Vodka, which was designed with espresso martinis and porn star martinis in mind. Fun fact, they are actually two of the UK's most popular cocktails, and also, of course, faves of us two basic bitches. I think I can speak for both Ellie and I though when I say that sometimes we can have a few too many and slightly regret it come the morning. Strike is perfect here. The brand is all about balance, offering the option for people like us to basically flexi drink. So you can start your night with say a couple of traditional alcoholic cocktails before then moving on to a couple made with the not vanilla vodka. That means no headache the next day and it tastes the exact same and the strike based cocktails only have 100 calories each and you know, both espresso martinis and pour star martinis are usually really quite fattening. So yeah, the dream. We are so, so happy to be offering listeners of Straight Up 25% off site-wide at strike.com with code straightup25. Don't forget it's spelled S-T-R-Y-K-K. So that's S-T-R-Y-K-K.com. Thank you so much to Strike. Californian soil at feminist record I know that you have been the kind of driving force in terms of the writing of the album um it's kind of your vision and it does deal a lot with your kind of experiences of misogyny in the music industry over the past seven eight years um talk to us a little bit about that like I know you were at a point like we say that you you weren't even sure if you wanted to continue with music but then you did find this kind of well of inspiration um, starting with um, American, America, American flag. Yeah. American. Yeah. American flag is good. That's that's a yeah. great alternate <laughs> name. I like that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I had a strange, well, not a strange experience with the music industry. I had like I think the experience that everyone has in the music industry, where I think no matter who you are. I think because people are so young when they first sign record deals, I think it's pretty hard to know what's normal, what's not normal, how to protect yourself, how to be business savvy. I think that they are all quite hard lessons that a lot of artists have to learn on their journey. And definitely as a band, we just, I think had a couple of experiences of just feeling a bit taken advantage of and kind of feeling like, you know, it's, it's a battle to hold on to your vision sometimes mm. that's just that's natural we're really lucky that we are still working with the same a and r who um 
actually signed us when we were young and we have a great relationship with him um but we did have some other unfortunate experiences I guess I feel like you know whenever this comes up I always feel like I have to be kind of careful with what I say because I like don't want to get sued by anyone <laughs> yeah something. fair enough fair so, enough um so that definitely just happens to a lot of artists I think and that can wear you down for sure um but then also on top of that for me I definitely I think I kind of grew up in quite a nice, you know, it's it's, it's nice actually that, that you've come from Ealing as well, because I I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like um, the circle of people that I kind of grew up with in Ealing, it was quite sheltered, but a very kind of, in, a, in its way, like kind of down to earth upbringing. But like, I felt like there was, I was friends with boys and girls and that we kind of, I didn't ever feel on the outside of anything growing up being a woman. And I don't know whether it's partly maybe growing up in London or, or I, I, I don't know, but I, um, I definitely was taught at school. It was like, Oh, you know, the suffragettes happened and now we have the vote and everything's fine. <laughs> and then I had a slightly rude awakening in the, in the music industry, just feeling definitely on the back foot a lot, just always being sometimes pretty much always being the only female in the room but I think you know other unfortunate experiences of just being made to feel like it didn't matter what I did or how I said something if I was standing up for my vision or what I believed in I was being very very difficult and I had such a clear comparison all the time with my bandmates who were of course ever made to feel like that if they stand up for themselves it's them having integrity and um, do you think that compar- that constant comparison, as you say, actually made it easier for you to spot it when things were unfair and therefore to be able to call it out if you felt able to, or at least log it so that you realised there was a problem? Or was that actually much more upsetting for you to see the constant comparisons? I, I think it actually took me a while, which is the thing about it that surprises me the most. I'm, I'm, saddened by how quickly I think I just lost confidence and Mm. that I wasn't able to really pinpoint exactly what was going on some sometimes and um I didn't see how much actually it was wearing me down but all it takes is for there to be one man in the room who is misogynistic or who is sexist who is making you feel like you're being difficult. It, it doesn't have to be that you're in a room with seven men who are misogynistic. It can just be one person and it can have such a profound effect on you if you're having to work alongside someone like that. And it's also the other thing is that it's impossible to change. So I learned very quickly that it just felt like if I'm reasonable and lovely about this, whatever the situation might be, um, that's not going to really get me anywhere. If I'm very firm and um, a bit more aggressive about it, that also is going to get me nowhere because that's the goal is to for me to get nowhere. Mm. Um, I, I think I would have been able to handle it a lot better if it wasn't for the fact that being a musician, obviously what I do for a living is, you know, you are bearing your soul. You are making yourself very vulnerable. I think I emotionally it's quite clear from our music that I'm quite a sensitive person Mm. um and I couldn't just sort of walk away and go and work at another firm not that I think that that's ever an easy thing to do anyway but um 
so yeah it was it was extraordinary I obviously just now have a policy where I'm like any hint of that kind of stuff and I just I just won't do it you know I just will have you noticed a change now that you've called it out um have you noticed that people are more vigilant or I mean hopefully it comes from somewhere more authentic than like Hannah's gonna call out my shit but like have you noticed a change there yeah well um I mean, we now actually do a lot of work, pretty much 95% of all of our music is now just done us three anyway. We've kind of learned to be completely self-sufficient. So creatively, we don't actually have much outside involvement anyway. Um, But I think there just has been a change in general, just the last year, I'd say, even of just so many female artists coming out and talking about this stuff, like pretty much every female artist ever is coming Mm. out and and speaking about it um and I think it's made a huge difference and I think sometimes like there are obviously absolutely awful things that go on in the music industry that I do think it's important for me to say that you know I've not experienced the worst end of the scale um kind of things that I know for a fact do go on um but even the small everyday things um I think that there has been a change where even men who don't realise, I think sometimes maybe the way that they're behaving or don't realise what it's just like for a woman to be in the music industry, I think have gone away and done a lot of self-reflection, which is really great. Did you notice a change as well or a shift in terms of how you're perceived sort of externally so like as well as misogyny that happens behind closed doors or in studios um what about kind of your treatment from maybe not fans because obviously we would hope that fans would have enough respect to not behave in that way but yeah from the kind of general public whether that was people being because I know I mean as as with so many as for so many women like people will sort of devalue your your role or think like oh well you're just like the pretty blonde face of the band but you can't be like writing the songs or you can't be like you know the the creative talent behind it is that something that you've noticed uh that still does happen sometimes Mm. I I do the blonde thing is an interesting one I do wonder sometimes I'm like (laughs) I think I've always kind of been I'm I'm kind of really nerdy but I also am you know I do have long blonde hair and I'm kind of well spoken and I love Justin Bieber and Britney Spears and (laughs) just I'm just both but that's the thing I I do still think sometimes when you're a woman your image or the way that you look or what you choose to wear I think subconsciously people put you in a box faster Mm. sometimes Mm. I still notice notice that happening but definitely a lot less I think yeah because you said before didn't you that you weren't there was points where you went out of your way to almost like desexualize your image and wear clothes that were like kind of scruffy or like not wildly flattering because you didn't want that to be part of the conversation yeah I yeah I think so that's such and a I shame don't think yeah I kind of I mean I kind of that does make me a bit sad not that I you know I mean I, I do dress down generally really as a person anyway but I do think I now I look back on it I think yeah I was kind of desexualizing myself I was kind of making myself I think try and fit in in some way or felt like if I played up the whole blonde hair and wore a really sexy dress or something that that would probably not help me really be taken seriously 
And mm. I think, you know, that's why I love artists like um, Lizzo and Miley Cyrus, where yeah. they can be, they're all the shades of who they are, all the colors, all the, um, you know, everything about them is there to be seen, their sexuality, but also just what amazing producers and writers they are. And it's like, you can be all of it. And it's like a new wave of mm. feminism, which is really cool. I, I definitely also notice. I think what I've realized now is um, how kind of um, women my age, so all my girlfriends, me and all my girlfriends, actually, you know, it's not just the music industry. When I kind of have spoken about all of this stuff, I've had like friends who are doctors come and tell me experiences they've had or girlfriends who work in law or work in the city or um, like all walks of life. It's like the same kind of stories. Um, and I think we do acknowledge that we still grew up at a time where um, I had great friendships with with men growing up, but there was definitely a lot of, uh, maybe it's, uh, it must be the same now, but definitely a lot of, oh, um, you know, being followed home from school, that kind yeah. of thing. And, and teachers yeah. being like, you can't wear nail varnish and you can't have short skirts and you have to do this and you have to look or like and dress. Bra straps that are like visible or. All yeah kind of all that kind of thing yeah for sure I mean it says a lot that a lot of girls at girls schools now wear cycling shorts underneath their skirts so they don't get like upskirted by boys and stuff which is just like awful do they god I didn't even I know was, that. I read an article about that um Hannah I wondered as well if there's been a lot of chat recently I think about the way musicians are and not just musicians also female film stars are written about by male critics and reviewers um, there have been a couple of examples for different musicians and some actors recently. And I wondered if that, if you'd noticed a change there at all in a way. I mean, maybe you don't read press and you've not maybe noticed the difference between how men write about you um, or critique your work versus women. Um, but if you have, has there been a, any progress there? Um, that's a really, really interesting point because I would say I, that's, we still have a lot of work to do there. Um, I tend not to re like read reviews too much, but generally speaking, over the course of our career, I definitely was aware of a sense. Um, I definitely had my lyrics called vacuous a lot. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a, a few times. And they were always men who were saying that. And I remember just being like, God, this song just has so many multi layers of meaning <laughs> for me. How is it vacuous? And I really took it to heart. And now I'm just like, you yeah. know what, whatever. And, and you know, that's their opinion. And, and I guess you can't always say, oh, well, they're being sexist. But it was curious. And um, I think, yeah, I still kind of feel like we're in the whole critic world. I think it's probably still easier to kind of the whole male genius thing, you know, male artistic mm, genius yes, still, still seems to win. I 100%. Think, over women. Yeah. You can get applauded, like men get applauded for like the smallest thing ever. But for women, it's like Mount Everest, literally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, yeah. Although, even with the thing, I mean, it was a few months ago now, but obviously, you both, I'm sure, will have seen it with them. Um, the critic in Vanity Fair who said that Carrie Mulligan was like not attractive enough to play the main role in Promising Young Woman. It's like, how actually dare you? She couldn't be a femme fatale. It wasn't a convincing femme fatale. <laughs> I didn't see that, but that's, it's like they clearly just missed the whole point of the film. Yeah, and she did a like an open letter about it, I think, because she was like obviously so, so upset by it. 
just like the audacity like who are you and why do you get to like have this opinion like but then more nuanced perhaps or maybe more tricky i don't know peter bradshaw the guardian film critic got into trouble on twitter for describing scarlett johansson in her new film black widow um like the first thing he said about her was he described her i think cough syrup cough syrup purr i think was how he described her voice and then it's created this huge debate over like well you know sexuality is integral to a character her character is sexual should we not be able to say that but then others were saying it was degrading i think they're going through a really difficult teething Mm. process as Mm. like as as a human race i guess yeah yeah it is tough it's like yeah the whole nuance of everything and just i think each situation is so unique and i think sometimes as well what um for you know if someone gets upset about something i think it's very difficult for the person who is upset to ever separate themselves it really depends on what their personal context is and what they've been through as well and what it means to them and sometimes you can't prove when something is kind of sexist but you just kind of know yeah Uh, well there's this amazing quote that me and Kathleen actually talked about because it was from your interview with the Telegraph I think and I actually wrote a piece all about this quote which was when you talk about invisible hostility and how you can't prove it um but you say if you have those small experiences often enough it does corrode you away and I felt like that was so powerful and so apt and it's actually a feeling that I've had so many times and was never actually able to put into words I think that's something so many more women will be able to relate to that than like as you say the more macro aggressions that you haven't maybe experienced like some of your other colleagues in the music industry but they can be so corrosive that is such a perfect word for it as you, as it's you so it. insidious and toxic that's the thing it's a toxic environment to try and work in and um all women are just trying to do their best and try to do their jobs and sometimes I think you know when I've spoken to my girlfriends about experiences that they've had they're like the most frustrating thing about it is I don't want to have to be talking about this stuff I just want to do my job and I want yeah. to do a good job and and it's that's what's it's so draining it's so exhausting did you, was there like a particular incident? So obviously you'd had kind of years of this slow corrosion, but was there something in the end that especially made you want to throw in the towel? Like a particular incident or experience when that pushed you to that point of like, okay, I actually just don't think I'm cut out for this or like it's too much. It was an accumulation of things. I mean, I think alongside this, you know, I was suffering with my health and I'll, mm. I'll never know you know, if I had done something else for a living, would I have this anyway? Because I think there's probably some genetic component going on. So definitely just my health was a separate issue. And I think you do have to be pretty fighting fit to go out on the road and to do gig after gig after gig. Um, But there were a couple of occasions. Um, I mean, I remember after the first album campaign, basically just trying to trying to kind of have full control over the sort of beast that London Grammar had become at that time um, had been very difficult and I definitely was suffering from exhaustion and it got to a point where I just didn't turn up to the airport one day to go and do a show because I just knew I couldn't do it yeah, I just knew I wasn't well enough. I was like, I'm just going to have to not not go. And I do remember telling the people that we were working with at the time, you know, saying, I'm 
I'm not well, but I just, I don't know what is wrong with me um, mm. yet, but I, I'm really, really suffering. Um, and, I, and I do remember um, the person in question didn't realize they were on loudspeaker and, and they said to Dan Adot that I was just irrational. <gasps> oh my God. Oh yeah. And God. that was, and that was the problem was, was I was irrational and it, it just would never be said about a man. And um, it's that choice of word, yeah. even irrational. That's oh yeah, my, totally. That actually makes my oh, gender just thinking about yeah. it. Yeah. Mm. So, but I, I mean, that was an accumulation of things, even that, you know, I wouldn't say that made me want to throw in the towel. I think it was just kind of struggling so much just to, I guess just have my voice heard. But what is really interesting, and I do think this is important for me to say, I'm in a band with two boys and I do think that they were actually worn down by it as well because I mm. don't think that all men fit into this uh, macho kind of world, which I do think the music industry is. And I think they lost a lot of confidence. I think they lost themselves. And um, yeah, that's why, um, you know, feminism is about people being everyone being equal it's not about um well it is about raising women up you know because that needs to happen but it's actually about how fundamentally we are we are all the same (laughs) that's what I believe exactly and especially with the whole rock and roll thing if they didn't feel that they could be the like Dave Grohl type rockers of you know like maybe that can be stressful as well um, I would that. say I would say there was I could visibly see that pressure around mm. them definitely mm. of them feeling like they kind of had to fit in to that yeah mm. you guys met at Nottingham Uni um what were you listening to at the time so um yeah it's a, it's a good story actually how we kind of met and and got together um I mean, musically, dubstep and electronic music was huge. It was kind of um, the wave of electronic artists who had been influenced by Burial. Yeah. Um, so I remember we listened to a lot of electronic music together, me, Dan and Dot. And Nottingham actually has um, a club called Stealth, which has quite a rich sort of electronic music history. Um, but again, I kind of would be at Stealth sometimes, but also was in Ocean with my girlfriends you know listening yeah. to music. <laughs> yeah. um I've always like you know like been split in that way or not split just all the shades of whatever um yeah, the best way yeah and but the way we actually met was uh Dan saw a photo of me on Facebook playing the guitar and he messaged me and he was kind of you know we'd spoken a little bit and chatted a bit um but we had never really hung out properly we were kind of in different groups of friends I guess and um and then we just met up for this really awkward jam in his room. <laughs> and it was looking back on it now it was pretty embarrassing for everyone involved and I just like sung I just kind of had to sing for him and it was like an audition um <laughs> and that's literally the first time you'd met so we had we had met cross paths but it was the first time we ever kind of like really hung out turns out he also really fancied my friend who he's now married <laughs> to <laughs> oh my god that's so cute 
Yeah, so yeah. So that, trying to get close to you to get close to her. Yeah, yeah. Was it I even about now, the music? I don't really. I don't think it was. But <laughs> that's kind of a funny. It's kind of a funny story because then we we would all you know be hanging out in his room, kind of after nights out, just like jamming. I mean, how embarrassing the whole thing. It just sounds so fun. <laughs> um, but no more cringe than Youth Music Theatre UK. So yeah, um, <laughs> yeah and I remember him kind of telling me you know oh you know your friend's really nice <laughs> and I was like I promise I won't say anything but like do you fancy her and he was like yeah but like definitely don't say anything and I obviously just like straight away went to her and told her instantly um and yeah and they're now married and it's actually because of Lara Dan's wife that um she introduced us to Dot a year later uh, she, yeah did you sing at their wedding or is that a too obvious question? Did you have to? Did they rope you into it? <laughs> no, I actually think I would have been for, like forbidden. Oh, really? <laughs> I think it was like the one day it's like, this is not about, this definitely is not about the band. <laughs> you know? Not a London okay, band yeah. day. Fair enough. <laughs> I, have, I have been asked that before and I've <laughs> politely declined because no one wants to hear the sad. It's a celebration. You know, I think our music's far too sad. For a yes, that's wedding. true. The right fit for a wedding. Yeah, funerals maybe I would say. Yes. <laughs> Have you been asked to sing at a funeral? No, no. Okay. I'm still waiting. <laughs> <laughs> we always ask our guests what they remember um, the time where they basically realised that the band or the gig or whatever had become completely financially successful on its own that you stopped having to do any side gigs that you were doing like be that working at a bar which I know that you, I think you did before you started at Lon with London Grammar full-time when when do you re when do you remember being like okay this financially is gonna work this can be my career I think I think it took a while actually when we signed a record deal it, there was so much work involved in making the record that we then did I think we were on like 400 pounds a month or something, but we all were lucky enough to, you know, I was living at home. So it was kind of, it was fine. Um, but I guess it was the first time we probably had a PRS check, you know, mm -hmm. and that's when I was like, oh, this is my job now. I don't need to just, you know, tell people I've signed a record deal and watch them kind of roll their eyes and walk away. It's like, I actually am making a living from doing this. And I, and I hopefully don't need to worry for a while, which was an amazing You didn't have thing. a, did you have a, a side hustle? No, I I didn't have a side hustle. I'm trying to think, did I have a side hustle? It all happened quite quickly after you finished uni as well, right? That you got the record deal. It did happen very quickly. So we were actually doing our final exams as we were traveling back and forth from London to finish signing the record. So in our third year, we worked music was the focus, really. I mean, I don't think Dan went to a single lecture at all <laughs> in his third year and then when and then dot was in the year below us so when um we were actually making the record he had to he carried on with his degree but just was never there and just handed in coursework that must have been wild though kind of becoming famous while still at uni like were you very conscious of the fact that you suddenly had become a name in quite an insulated environment and closed space um, I was, I can't say I was aware of that because we'd only put up like one song online that was not a very, very good one, but there, <laughs> but people were positive about it. I actually can't believe I had the confidence to do that, to put, to put the song out. Any, 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, now I, it's weird. I don't think I would do that now. Um, Interesting. Now I do, I do because it's my job. But, but then, yeah, we signed very quickly, and then it took about eighteen months to kind of finish off the record, and we put Hey Now up online, and Hey Now just exploded basically. So it was quite quick, I'd say. Yeah. When was the first time that you really like felt like you'd made it then? Was that when the album debuted at number two? Was it the first time you played like a massive gig? When was the watershed moment? Um, there, there are a couple. I think the first one was we did this gig in Australia where like we went from playing um, gigs in front of like 1,000, 2,000 people. And then we did this festival and it was I walked out on stage and there were like 12, 13,000 people. And I just had never, I mean, it was just insane. You know, I mean, I don't know how people like Ed Sheeran and Beyonce do it with like millions of people watching them. Like (laughs) I have so much respect for artists who manage that because 12,000 people, honestly, to me, looked like an ocean. It was crazy. (laughs) Um, And then I think probably doing um, TV, like when we did Graham Norton on the first album campaign, like for me, because I grew up watching Graham Norton and I love him so much that then to suddenly be on the show or Jules Holland as well, the first time we were on Jules Holland, you know, as a music lover, that was just... It's like such a marker of success. Because you um, struggle a bit with stage fright, or you have struggled a bit with stage fright in the past. Do you get it when you're doing, did you get it when you're doing TV um, performances or is it specifically when there's an audience, like a big audience? So for me, um, I actually find TV easier because usually it's quite, you know, it's not really about you the show mm. you're a part of something and you kind of mm. do one song and then you leave and it's it's a small audience whereas I get very overwhelmed by the big crowds so yeah when we were doing festival runs in Australia and, and I can manage it it's just I think when I then started to get exhausted I then struggled it got the better of me basically mm. what's your um kind of do you imagine them all naked I mean I suppose you can't really make out individual faces in the crowd but what's your like what's your like tip for trying to relax in those environments I mean at festivals a lot of the time they are naked there's a lot, there's <laughs> a lot of boobs <laughs> there's not much left of the imagination That's no true. there isn't there isn't um I think I've just learned to kind of just feel the fear and do it anyway. And it is fine. You can do that. You just can't do that for a very long time. I think on this third album in finding, again, it's kind of hard for me to separate because I feel like I lost so much confidence at the start of my career. I feel like I've regained that confidence now. Mm. And I hope that I won't get as anxious. But then you do hear, I mean, apparently Dame Judy Dench before every opening night of a show that she does now. I mean, I'm not sure how many she probably does, you know, just more film now. But apparently every single opening night, she's just like, why the hell do I do this for a living? Uh-huh. I'm never, and she's like, I am never doing it again. <laughs> and I'm like, that's Dame Judy Dench. I mean, that's it's just must be part and parcel. Let's well. put it into perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And this is very nosy of me, but I do like to ask uh, all guests, do you remember what you bought with your first paycheck? Maybe it was that PRS check you were talking about earlier. What was your kind of first expense that made you feel like, mom, dad, I got you. um, You don't need to worry about me anymore. I'm moving out. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Um. Oh, I mean, 
I'm just so boring. It's probably just like, you know, the expensive food at Whole Foods. It's just like the worst <laughs> answer ever. Like nothing that crazy. Just probably like, oh, okay, I'm going to shop at Waitrose now and um, I'm going to get like seven pucatees and, <laughs> you know. They are I mean, expensive to be fair. I actually, I actually... I actually kind of want to think about a different answer just so you can edit that <laughs> yeah. out because it's so such a boring answer. I mean, the most. Yeah. I mean, my most. <laughs> yeah, let's go with let's go with um, my French bulldog. Oh, she's, oh, she's probably the most lavish thing I've ever spent like a fortune on, and she cost me an absolute fortune. What's her name? Her name is Phoebe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and she's pretty expensive. So that was probably I probably would have gotten you know a, a cheaper dog. <laughs> if you hadn't made it in the music industry yeah. were you were you like kind of living out of a suitcase the first few years then was it just oh yeah tour bus to hotel back I mean back to tour bus if if this didn't work out and I, if I had to go and do something else in an office I would be absolutely useless but the one thing that I'm an expert on is how to pack a suitcase <laughs> do you do like and the Japanese I, folding method yeah, yeah, you roll everything up. You have like Ooh. twice as much space, um, and also just how to pack like last minute, pack everything and sweep a hotel room in five minutes. I mean, we did literally live out of um, a hotel room and a suitcase for like six years, probably. <laughs> and people always think it's like a super glamorous lifestyle, but I guess what those that have a better insight into the reality of the industry realize is that it's not that glamorous at all like tour buses are not that glamorous the hotels are often not that glamorous like what was it kind of like for you guys at that point was it not not the nicest hotels and stuff like that or were you because you had this kind of like major record deal major label record deal were you being kind of treated quite nicely from the start uh there was a lot of I mean I kind of always got because because I was the only girl I always got my own hotel room but definitely oh, nice. I hear quite funny stories from Dan and Dot when they were, had to share a room at the start. And <laughs> there are these hotels in like Europe, like in Amsterdam, where the toilet is in the middle of the room. So they oh, would no. be sharing a room and would have to just like use the toilet in the middle of the room. And <laughs> oh, God. They, they, they know everything each, about each other's like sleeping habits and stuff, which is kind of funny. Um, but yeah, I think at the beginning, it, it's, you know, it's definitely a hard graft, kind of, you know, interspersed with some really fun, glamorous moments, but they are moments. And yeah, it, it was definitely hard work, but yeah, it was incredible. I mean, it's given me everything that I have. So what's the most glamorous night you ever attended? Um, I guess the Brits probably mm. that, that was pretty, that was very surreal going to the Brits for the first time. And like, I just look back at my outfit and just, I'm so upset about what I wore and what my hair was like, just everything was wrong. It is really annoying. It's, 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 it's bum out for sure. Did you have and a stylist? Was, yeah. But I think again, we were so new to it. I think it was like, she was like a new stylist stylist and she didn't Aww. really speak to the hair person and then, but it's more it has to come from you as a person and if you're not that kind of person I was just like yeah just do whatever and I have no <laughs> idea um but you can definitely there are definitely loads of pretty awkward looking photos of me down a dot on a red carpet we're not the most um natural should we say <laughs> you don't love the step and repeat board <laughs> no I I think actually there are like um there's like a special way of standing or something that like people do mm. Kathleen you were teaching me about this from your friend where you like cock the thigh in a bit and then bring the foot up 
Yeah, I think you basically don't like want your legs to be like, I don't think you want to be standing just straight on, like arms down, legs straight, basically, because then you just look You want really the awkward, toe to the but... flo- toe to the floor, yeah. I mean, I'm not the... It's funny you say that because I'm thinking of this picture and that's literally, that's where I went wrong. I just was a statue. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> like frozen in headlights. So, Anna, we're coming to the end of our time with you. So to kind of wrap up, um, a few final questions. Maybe if you could start off by telling us if there had to be a plan B or maybe more just like a dream a dream job for when maybe you don't want to um, be in the spotlight anymore. Is there another career avenue that you've thought about? I know in, a, in an interview I once read that you thought about being a psychoanalyst. Is that still something you'd consider? Yeah, I would. Um, I'm super interested in psychology. So I would love to do something kind of I mean it sounds cheesy but to help people and give back a bit more um or I definitely would also happily be like a dog groomer very different (laughs) (laughs) love that and finally Hannah the achievement that you maybe wish was talked about a little bit more I mean there are so many and I think everyone does talk about them a lot but maybe is there something kind of little known that you wish had a little bit more a little bit more time good question or if not, I guess even if it's not that other people are talking about it, what is the achievement that like you feel most proud of? I think playing Glastonbury. Amazing. I think just playing, just being a part of playing Glastonbury for me is like, again, it's just this musical heritage. It's like, I don't think it can get better than that. So I don't wish people spoke about it more because, you know, everyone... Those people. I mean, well, everyone plays Gastonbury usually in some form or another. But for me, it's like I'm like I can't believe I had the courage to do that at all. It was yeah, amazing. amazing. What's your favorite song to perform? Was there one in the Glastonbury set that sticks out when you go think back at that time? Yeah, I definitely um, Hey Now and Metal and Dust. You know, mm. on that that first album campaign. Mm. Um, the hardest one to sing is sights because there are always people crying to that one Ooh. so I have to like not look directly at them because <laughs> oh I'll my cry god and it's like a whole thing <laughs> yeah you can't sing through tears but the my favorite one to sing metal and dust and hay now because vocally as well they're just kind of they just come out they're kind of easy yeah you know and oh, like the back of your hand yeah amazing. yeah exactly what about you guys it, uh, obviously I'm sure you've been to Glasto many times or yeah I've only been one thing Oh, I danced with Jeff Goldblum at Glastonbury. That was pretty cool. Oh my that, God. So basically my editor had been like, go and interview Jeff Goldblum. And his manager had been like, no, Jeff's not doing any interviews. He's literally flying in, doing his show, going straight to LA after that. And so he was like, but it's fine. My editor was like, just make the piece about your quest to find Jeff. Um, <laughs> I was like, okay, never thought I would actually find Jeff at the end of it. But basically after ages trying to find him, because I thought he might be at like the uh, the rabbit hole before he went on stage and stuff I eventually made my way backstage and pretended to the person on like the door of the backstage area that I was his manager and I had so many like press passes uh that they just like let me in and then there was Jeff and I just ran up to him and I was like Jeff I've been looking for you all day uh and then he just (laughs) and he didn't seem to find that weird and he just took me in his arms and we just like did this weird waltz around the like enclosed space backstage and then, thank God, me. someone took pictures. They're on my Instagram if anyone would like to go and see. I'm, I am going to go and see because I love Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> I love Jurassic Park. Like him and Sam Neill, 
I love them he, both so much. He's like a mythical man because there's just so much like awe around him. Like he's so mysterious and oh, it's like, of it's course just... he would like grab you for a waltz. Like exactly. Of course Jeff. I waltz with Jeff. Anyway. <laughs> I, you, yeah, have you ever seen Sam Neill's Instagram? No, I haven't. So he is the only Instagram that I stalk on a regular basis. <laughs> London Grammar do not comment on other people's Instagrams. The only Instagram London Grammar comment on is Sam Neill's. So and he, oh God, I love lives, that. he lives in New Zealand. This is he great has, intro. Like, he has this like amazing farm with like pigs and horses and his best friend is like a chicken. So like if you <laughs> go on his Instagram, you'll see like some silly post about, I don't know, some old photo or like his chicken and you'll just see like London grammar like oh this is lovely Sam I'm just, I'm what do your bandmates think about? are they like please stop trolling Sam Neil I don't think I've not told them I don't think they notice I really noticed <laughs> <laughs> because I want him to see and I'm like he won't he might has he ever liked your comments grammar. no never like, oh. like one day he'll be like hey I'd actually love to come down to a show sometime yeah well actually but, you know we're meant to be going to New Zealand next year so maybe i'll try and oh my god okay we're gonna tag him in our in our in our social rollout of this episode (laughs) try and get his attention i'm kind of embarrassed though no it's great also that's the great thing about using the london grammar instagram is that like no one will ever know if it was you or dan or dot that's a really good point if his best friend is a chicken that's probably more more embarrassing he is mad I mean, you should see his, his, yeah. That's actually what I'm going to go and do right after this interview. Love a bit of an Instagram (laughs) black hole, so. Yeah. Oh, Hannah, thank you so much. This has been such a joy. Thanks, yeah. It's been been a pleasure.